From the Third Coast International Audio Festival and Chicago Public Radio, I'm Gwen Maxi, and this is ReSound. Are you male, female, female? Are you a member of one of the Aboriginal peoples of North America? No. Are you a member of a visible minority? Now this gets difficult. ReSound is a remix of music, documentaries, found sound, sound bites, and bits and pieces of fabulous audio we find all over the world. We're talking about the internet, the airwaves, radio festivals in Europe. I'm telling you, where there is audio, there is ReSound. And, lucky for you, ReSound is here. Inside, I was like, why are you telling me this? I'm just a kid. Why should I have to worry too? On my street, there were two groups of people. There were the little boys and the little girls. And I was supposed to be with the little girls. When you're younger, you don't, you don't ponder, you know, well, who am I? What, what, why am I here? You know, you're just living for the day, having fun, watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and eating cereal. It's easy to see the horizon when you're on a mountaintop. It's also easy to see what's in front of you when you're on the ground. But when you're in between, whether physically or metaphorically, there are infinite opportunities to get lost, confused, turned around, and muddled. That said, when you're in a state of in-between, whether you're a kid who feels like a grown-up or a girl who feels like a boy, you have a perspective that, while not always easy, is rich and distinctive and full of surprises. All the elements of a great story. Today on ReSound, people with a foot in two worlds. It's funny, a lot of people, a lot of black people have no interaction with white people, no white friends, and a lot of white people the same. I actually have a black person, a white person that live in my house, interact constantly, Cho- you know, chose each other over anyone else in, on the whole earth, in the whole universe. Our first story is told by Jeff, a teenager in Boston. Jeff is goofy, smart, and charming. In addition to these adjectives, here are a few more. Black, white, and brown. Good morning, Jeff. It's time to get up. Let's go. <clears throat> yeah, I'm coming. Uh, what's going on? It's Jeff. 6.20. Got to get up and go to school. Usually every morning, listen to some music. Uh, Cause I gotta get energized Like my morning coffee I love my music This morning The selection of Disco Sister Sledge He's the greatest dancer Yes I do listen to Disco I wonder why He's the greatest dancer My name is Jeff I'm 16 I live in Dorchester Which is part of Boston I live with both my parents My father my mother, two brothers and a sister. When my family's all together, it looks like an unusual bunch because people don't quite place it as a family right away. We look like a real motley crew. He's the greatest dancer. I wonder why. Have I seen? I wonder why. He's the greatest dancer. I wonder why. When most people look at me, they think I'm Puerto Rican. And it's like, that's exactly what I look like, the stereotypical Puerto Rican. Like, slick back hair, long sideburns, both ears pierced, one of those little pencil-thin teenage mustache. 
but it, it always ends up coming up when someone says, how do you say such such in Spanish to me? And I say, I'm not Spanish. They say, what are you? Let me get into some of my pop's old records. My father's really into music. You know, he has a lot of old records. And going through the records and tapes and CDs that he has, that you come across funny stuff like this. I was like, hey. Three Dog Night. It's corny, but it, it's cool, you know what I'm saying? It's like, this is my theme song. Child is black, the child is white. The whole world looks upon a side. A beautiful side. Usually, when someone asks what I am, I say I'm African. You know, my father's black, my mother's white. And when I was younger, to me, that's the way it was supposed to be. Father meant black person, mother meant white person. You know? I thought, it was, to me, it was normal. Anything else was unusual. And, you know, race had no bearing on anything. To me, two Asian people could, could just have a black kid. It made perfect sense when I was younger. Parents, the coffee connoisseurs. I was a coffee maker. I just, <laughs> I like the DJ on it. It's like uh, they always had that argument: nature versus nurture. You know, is it the way you're brought up or just the way you're born? When you're younger, you don't you don't ponder. You know, you know who am I? What, what what why am I here? You know, you're just living for the day, having fun, watching Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and eating cereal. Then, you know, you hit that, that, that beautiful certain age and you start to redefine yourself. And Kathy, the biggest thing is probably the opposite sex, or like I say, in my case, girls. Blondie, Michaela, Shannon. These are little numbers that you rip off a little piece of paper. I got other pages of numbers, like ones that actually took the time to write down. These are the miscellaneous ones. Liz, Mimi, Monique. You know, as in elementary school and in middle school, to girls, I was more or less undesirable. People used to make fun of me rank on me, whatever, a lot. And I know a lot of kids got made fun of when they were little because they were mixed, but I never did, and I'll tell you why. Because I was so fat, people ignore it to, to jump on the easier fat jokes. I was huge, I mean, pretty big. But, you know, it made me sharp-tongued, sharp-witted. You know, you had to develop guts living like that. And uh, it was right at the time when I hit middle school, I started getting some style. You know what I'm saying? Dressing a little better, taking care of myself, realizing that, you know, you, you had to comb your hair, you didn't just get up and go. <laughs> little, little stuff, you know, wipe the crust out your eye, and next thing you know, the girls are looking at me. And, uh, I'm glad they look at me now. Yep, I got them, huh? About to be out the door. I guess I'll check y'all later. school I go to is Boston Latin Academy in Roxbury. Right now I'm just going through the hallways. Bell just rang. Fourth period. Lunch is about to start. I look unusual with a big microphone walk through the hallway. What are you doing? My job. When you walk into the cafeteria at school, in one corner sit all the white kids. Then more in the middle sit the black kids. And then on the other side, there's a little place for the outcasts. And somewhere, the Hispanic kids get scattered. All right, now, everyone at this table is white, right? 
Yeah, we white. Hey, why you think why you think all the white people sit together? I'm thinking about getting the uh, race change, you know. Uh, I, I remember acting one time the principal issued like a little statement about that, like, yeah, you guys should try to intermingle more or whatever. Everyone politely ignored her. Usually I sit at one of the black tables, the black male table. Yo, so you wouldn't hang you wouldn't sit at a table white folks? Personally I don't think I'd fit in. Because it's like it's like a different culture. Yeah. Only time when black kids tend to consider me not fully black seems to be when the actual subject of race comes up. One of the things when you listen to rap, rap's always talking about uh, it's going to be a race war. And people kind of look at it like, what side am I going to be on? Who will I fight for? And that kid Kamal that I was talking to, he's arguing there's going to be a race war. And, and he said the reason why no one told me about it was because I'm half and half. Actually, you know, he said, you didn't hear about it? It's because you're half and half. As if it was like, yeah, he's cool, but he also fraternizes with the enemy, so he can't know our plans. You know, he can't be trusted. I don't know, it seems like a whole bunch of malarkey now, but all I'm saying is that, you know, I'm never really, 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 really fully in. It's almost like, uh, hmm, if we're on a sports team, they've all been on the Celtics their whole life. But me, I've been on the Celtics for years, but I got traded from the Clippers. So if I was able to say, yeah, the Clippers isn't a bad organization, they'd say, yeah, you're just saying that because you were once on the Clippers. You never know, when it comes to the race issue, I could just be a traitor, you know? It's funny, a lot of people, a lot of black people have no interaction with white people, no white friends, and a lot of white people the same. I actually have a black person, a white person live in my house, interact constantly, Cho you know, chose each other over anyone else in, on the whole earth and the whole universe. And it's illustrated to me every day, you know. These days, you know, my parents are kind of affluent, but there was a time when they were really dirt poor. They lived in the projects. They lived in Columbia Point, probably the, the oldest and biggest projects in Boston. Amen. Pass our I'll do mine first. <laughs> As my father tells it, and I never heard my mother disagree, him being black, my father walked up to my mother one day. He walked up and said, are you racist? And she said, you know, as is cool for white people to say then and now. No, 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 not at all. Not, not racist, me, no, never. And he said, well, I am, and walked away. According to him, that's the first thing he ever said to her. You know, he was just being being a smart guy, just like he is now. And she was just playing the straight woman, just like she does now. You never know what you're going to like or who you're going to end up with. When I got to your mother, the color really had nothing to do with it. I liked her. She she was all over me like what like it. I couldn't do anything about it. I succumbed and you guys are here. So thank you very much. <laughs> thank you. I mean back then would you say it was more I don't think I had to put this. Was was that more the exception or the rule? I mean it that down south in nineteen sixty it was against the law for black people white people to get married or be together. What what happened what happened was when your mother and I realized that she was pregnant and that we had been playing with fire and got burnt, 
I went over and I, I told my mother. My mother took it better than I thought. And then we had to tell other people. And they urged us to give the baby up, give your brother up, big time. They didn't approve of it. All the notions that they had maybe that we weren't going to stay together, that it wasn't going to work, that we were going to have a terrible life, that uh, <clears throat> we were going to end up on welfare forever, you know, all of those, all of those notions. It didn't pan out. It, it, it's so funny when I think back now, but my grandmother was a beautiful, beautiful woman, and she was, you know, she's the image of your mother. Somewhere along the line, uh, one of the slaves or something was impregnated, but somewhere along the line, there's some white blood in, in almost all of our families, but I think in Grandma. But if you told Grandma that she was white, and we used to do that just to tease her sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> she used to get upset about it. I'm not white, I'm not white, you know. One of the things that I'm kind of envious of, of you guys is that when you're with your mother, you can look like you're white. When you're with your father, you can look like you're black. <laughs> bada bing, bada boom, that's it. You can be whatever you want, you know? You can be whatever you want. Yeah. One day, my father was listening to Stevie Wonder. And I heard, it's one of the first songs I really tried to learn how to play on the piano. It, it does kind of make you want to reminisce. It's a dope song that way. It makes you think about stuff. 16 years old, almost 17, and being black and white kind of, kind of makes sure I was always set apart. You know, a little bit different, always, always a little, you know, offbeat. In life, uh, I'm beginning to think there's only two type of people. There's the types of people that see the sneaker that everyone has and rush out to get the new style, and there's the type of people that see the sneaker that everyone has and rush out to get something so that they can be so different and, and so outstanding. And I think I'm the latter. I love to be a little bit different. I'm going to stop my, my little speech right here. I think I said enough. So until then, peace out. There's a ribbon in the sky for our love. Jeff in Boston, African, was produced by Joe Richman as part of his series called Teenage Diaries. To hear more Teenage Diaries and see pictures of the diarists, go to our website at thirdcoastfestival.org. You're listening to ReSound from the Third Coast Festival and Chicago Public Radio. I'm Gwen Maxi. We welcome all missives. SOS, LOL, you send it, we'll read it. All comments, questions, rants, and raves can be sent to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Thinking about grown-up problems, being confronted with grown-up issues, having grown-up responsibilities, these trials, unfortunately, aren't restricted to just grown-ups.
Sarah Martinez knows this all too well. She's a teenager, but she's also a big sister, a daughter, a translator, and a second mom. I used to sing a lot. I used to jump up and down on the bed with the hairbrush for a mic and the stereo on loud. But this annoyed my parents, so I started to write songs in my notebooks at school. I keep my notebooks in different parts of my room, like hidden treasures. The songs are a part of me I don't want anyone to see. I sometimes don't look back at the songs I write. I don't have time to dwell on my feelings. I have a lot of responsibilities. One of them is helping my little brother Diego with his homework. He's autistic. Yes, homework. I'm tired and sleepy, but this little guy has to do his homework. People, people with umbrellas. 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 We found out that my brother had autism when I was 12 years old. That's when I began to grow up faster. Starting in seventh grade, I was in charge of all three of my siblings, if my parents were working. And taking care of Diego is hard. What are, you, what are you talking about? He couldn't find the lid off the cheese. He always sets things up the way he likes them. If there is a change, he freaks out. I'm also my parents' personal translator. My family is from Mexico. So, I translate letters, go to doctor's appointments, and I even go with my mom to the school events. Um, is there a way that you can translate that, what you said from the beginning? Because there are some parents here that might not understand. I'm just a teenager, but I still worry about everything to do with Diego. And my mom tells me all her worries, too. My mom is short and on the chubby side. She can't run very fast, and Diego slips right through her fingers. I'm very scared something will happen on the street. All through high school, when my mom was telling me her worries about Diego, inside I was like, why are you telling me this? I'm just a kid. Why should I have to worry, too? But instead, I just let my mom talk. Later, when I was finally alone, I would listen to my Avril Lavigne CD. And then, I would go back to helping out my parents with Diego. I called Eden 2, which deals with children who have autism. Hi, my name is Sarah, and we... I almost never complain about helping my parents, but this past year, I have started to notice how much anger, frustration, and confusion is trapped in my mind, and it's starting to break out at the weirdest times. Like when I went to meet with Donna Long of the Grace Foundation. She told me they offered family support services, and I was happy. But then I told her about the language barrier. That's one of the reasons why my parents haven't got, gone to counseling, because they don't know, um, they don't understand English. I, I, would, I would think for now, I, and that's, I, I hope not putting a burden on you, but maybe that's where you would come in 
to kind of help out, obviously speak English. So, <laughs> I mean, you may have to be that bridge. Hearing people parents. say that is a story of my life. I was so upset, and she could tell. The more we talked, the more we were talking about me, not about Diego or even my parents, which is a first. You can call here or come here anytime you want to talk. You could talk to my daughter who's 19. Donna told me she has two daughters, Janine who's autistic and Kristen who isn't. I had to grow up very fast. To be honest with you, I had times where I was like very upset about it, resented it so much, hated it, yeah. hated it. For me, I started to cry about two minutes into my conversation with Kristen. I'm sorry. Even though, like, my brother's 14 years old and my sister's 12, and I don't want to talk to them because I don't want to burden them. They might not be feeling the same thing that I do, but... But they might be. And I don't want them to be, like, feel what I have felt. Yes, but... <laughs> like, if they have too much responsibility, then I take some of it. I'd rather be home, like, helping my mom out than, like, enjoying myself. I don't know. You shouldn't give up, you know, having fun. It's important. <laughs> Go out. I'm like, <laughs> I'll take you out. <laughs> that would be fun. <laughs> yeah. But it's not like after talking to Kristen, the sky was bluer and the birds were chirping and everything was finally okay. I haven't called her, but I have started doing more things for myself. This is a song I wrote. Around you, the world and I've slowly been finding it easier to express my feelings, even about Diego. How easy it would be to float away. But there's something that holds you in your place. And that's him. I know that I'll never have it easy. When Diego grows up, he's not going to be like other grown-ups. And maybe I'll end up caring for him then too. I know some people who are always having fun. But fun is not everything. With all the responsibilities and all the worries, I've become understanding, patient, and so much more. What do you think of me? Well, I think... That's my sister, Sonia. She's 12 years can, old. Can you just leave me here alone with the microphone? <laughs> okay, and, um, <laughs> I'm okay. going to go and check on Diego. Mm -hmm. I think Sarah's a hero. I look up to her. Don't tell her. I don't think I'm a hero. I think you have to do something close to a miracle to be one. I'm just a big sister, trying to set a good example. The Second Mom by Sarah Martinez. Produced for Radio Rookies by Sandra Tight, Kari Pitkin, and Melissa Robbins. Radio Rookies, based in New York, works with young people to help them tell their stories on the air, and in doing so, allows a candid peek into the often private lives of teenagers. There's another Radio Rookie story coming up later in the show. Have something to say about the stories you hear on ReSound? Send it to us. Questions, comments, rants, and raves can be sent to ReSound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Roses con latas creciendo, 
We've all felt betwixt and between at some point, but when an entire people and their culture leave their homes, whether by eviction or choice, the blending and churning of lives and lands creates all kinds of new hybrids. In the case of thousands of Spanish Jews who were forced to leave Spain over 500 years ago, there's one particularly fascinating result of this mixing, their language, Ladino. Producer Sandy Tolan visited some of Bulgaria's last Ladino speakers, who are trying to keep their language from fading away. Four old women sit around a table at Shalom, a Jewish gathering house in Sofia. It's their weekly meeting of the Club Ladino, a social group whose membership is getting smaller and smaller. When she sings, Sophie Denan's face lights up like a child's, alert and animated. She and her friends are here to teach, to transfer what they know before it's too late. And so they turn to the next generation, a Bulgarian Jew named Lika. They want Lika to sing the memory, to create a record for all time. Their ancestors left Spain in a hurry five centuries ago, carrying little but their traditions, their stories, and their language. Ladino lived for centuries on the tongues of Balkan Jews, in song, in conversation, in stories, and in proverbs, crafted at the hearth and in the kitchen. Come la fruta, no demandes de que arvole es. Eat the fruit and don't ask which street came from. Cuando entras en un lugar oscuro, mete tu luz adelante. When you enter a dark place, hold your light in front of you. El que se echa con perros, con pulgas se levanta. He who sleeps with dogs gets up with fleas. En boca cerrada, no entra mosca. Into a closed mouth, no fly will enter. When I listen to the language, I go back to my childhood. I feel somehow more comfortable, more secure. It's sometimes some words, some proverbs, and I can feel even the smell of the house. It's very strange. Downstairs, in an office just below the Club Ladino ladies, a younger woman who's also rediscovering her Ladino, Becca Lazarova. She's gazing into the middle distance, as if at a memory. For my grandparents, for this generation, it was the home language. They really communicated at home only in Ladin. In the small park that was in the Jewish quarter, they used to go there every afternoon at about 4 o'clock, talking in this peculiar language until you were children playing around them. And they absolutely understood each other, speaking this mixture of uh, Spanish, Hebrew, Turkish and Bulgarian. This hybrid Judeo-Spanish was the mother tongue for Bulgarian Jews well into the 20th century. At the same time, nationalism and Zionism both grew stronger, and Jews here came under pressure to speak Bulgarian and Hebrew. Ladino was pushed into the kitchen. I remember Birkat Amazon, you know, this is the prayer after the meal. Usually Jews say it in Hebrew. I remember it in Ladino from my grandfather. Ladino 
And if you want me to translate it, it means we ate and drank and thank God for the food that we ate, for the water that we drink, for the clothes that we wear, and for the long years that we have to live. Even though Bulgaria's Jewish population stayed mostly intact during the Holocaust, after the war, 90% of Bulgaria's Jews went to the new state of Israel, where Hebrew would take hold. Under communism in Bulgaria, religious expression was discouraged. Many Bulgarian Jews who stayed were committed communists anyway. And Ladino curled up further, receding from the great Balkan expanse it once covered. The generation of my parents at home, they spoke Ladino only when they had secrets from us, from me and my brother, and when they argued between each other. My brother, who is just two years younger, and he knows just several words. And my children don't know anything, definitely. Yeah, this is my feeling that it will be something totally forgotten. Yes, it's uh, something um, close to heart. Vladimir Pawanovsky is director of the Jewish Museum of History in Sofia. Concerns my roofs, my uh, origin, uh, far away through the ages. It's a big culture, which uh, not only here in Bulgaria, but in Turkey, in uh, Serbia, in Greece, exi- existed. It's very difficult to save it like mother tongue. It's, I think it's impossible. While Ladino may never again be a mother tongue, That doesn't mean it will die. In the state archives in Sofia, a slight, brisk woman opens a glass case and reaches for a text. In this shop here, uh, we um, keep a rich collection of uh, books uh, in Ladino, the language that the Spanish Jews speak. The oldest uh, book in Ladino here uh, was uh, printed in Venice in 1713. Vanya Gazenko is the chief archivist for the Ladino texts here. This is a book about the Congress on the 9th Zionist Congress, like a report which was printed in Bulgaria in Plodiv in 1906 in a publishing house called Worker. Working with funds from a Jewish patron in London, she and her team went through hundreds of boxes in the basement of the archives, making discovery after discovery. Well, the feeling to uh, take out a book which uh, was in that box for years and years uh, is um, extremely exciting. Every book, uh, we opened each of the books with uh, lots of feelings. And we went through it also with lots of <laughs> lots of feeling. The, the books you see in this room, um, each of them has passed through my hands. Uh, personally, I have opened every every book in this room. Ladino will live on in these archives and in a new university program in Sofia to study Ladino and at a research center in Jerusalem. But soon it will go the way of Latin, still alive but mostly silent. At the Club Ladino, old women with wide eyes, wrinkled faces, and open mouths sing what they know to the next generation.
yo la hice como un tango. Rosas corladas creciendo en tiempo del amor, en tiempo del amor. Yo ya llora el corazón, llora que no hay más porque no es delito del hombre que llora por una mujer, que llora por una mujer. <laughs> Ladino Transformation by Sandy Tolan is a part of his series Worlds of Difference. To hear more stories from that series, check out thirdcoastfestival.org. Who are you? Is that an important question? Or would you say, who am I? Next up in our stories of In Between is Tracy Isaacs. Tracy thought she knew who she was until one day as a teenager when she was snooping around in her attic and she uncovered a piece of her history she'd never known about. Later, as an adult, these questions of identity came rushing back to her when a university questionnaire asked her to identify her race. And she wasn't sure which box to check. Do you want Do you want me to read these questions no, out loud? Do just the questions. Yeah. You don't have to read the introductory I, statement. I do not wish to complete this questionnaire. Well, it's optional. What if I say I don't? As an employee, you would have that option, but as my mother helping me right now, you don't have that option. I want you to, if you filled it out, to say how you would fill out each question. There's only four questions. Are you male, female, female? Are you a member of one of the Aboriginal peoples of North America? No. Are you a member of a visible minority? Now this gets difficult. Difficult? Tell me about it. I'm Tracy Isaacs in London, Ontario. I've been asking my mom and dad to help me out with this form. Every few years, the university where I teach sends out this survey. It's, it's trying to find out how diverse the workforce is. It's well-intentioned, but I struggle with it because the truth is I, I don't know where I fit. Looking at me, you could easily mistake me for white, but I was born in South Africa. My family wasn't classified as white. We weren't black under apartheid, we were in the in-between category, called colored. My family moved to Canada when I was three years old. I grew up never really thinking about the color of my skin, but now I have to. I don't think you need a racial identity. My husband, Reynold. I think that's a total, totally useless, it's not necessary. Okay, fine. but. You always used to say that I'm black, and I just don't feel like I can be black any more than I can be white. Like, I don't feel like I can just decide that. I mean, I hate the word color. I hate it. I hate it. That's the one thing I think that, you know, asking all these questions about it all the time, and now I've been reading about it, and I, oh, I just, ugh, can't stand that word, but I don't know then if that just means I don't have a racial identity or 
Forget about the colored. Colored means nothing. It has no significance. Like, why does it have to be white, colored, black? I know what you're saying, but I mean, you don't just decide. It's like, it's like for some reason, I don't feel white and I don't identify with black. Forget it. It's ridiculous. It's a judgment. It's, it's crude. It's, it's abusive. It's totally unnecessary. Why don't we just look at a person as being a person? But what about when people always say to me, where are you from? Well, you can say you're from South Africa. So what? So what? But then they want to know more. Please check one box below to indicate the group to which you belong. Partly what I'm trying to figure out is how how to think about myself, because how do other people think about me? Do you want me to read out the options? Black. Example, African black, American black, Canadian black, West Indian black, East Indian. Example, Chinese, Japanese, Korean, Polynesian, South Asian. Example, Indian, Pakistani, Sri Lankan, Bangladeshi. Pretty thorough. Southeast Asian. Example, Burmese, Cambodian, West Asian slash Arab. Example. Syrian, Egyptian, Turkish, Iranian, Israeli, Lebanese, Palestinian, mixed race, and other. Member of a visible minority group of persons of color. My dad. Are you a member of visible minority? It's a very difficult question to answer that. It's not easy to answer this. And strictly speaking, I'm not a visible minority, I guess, because to look at me, um, I'm none of these things. It's really a question I would have to think about. Most people know whether they're a member of a visible minority. I don't. I really don't. One of my friends said, maybe you're a member of an invisible, visible minority. (laughs) Maybe. um, Maybe. I'm not African black, not American black, not Canadian black. I think it would have to be other. South African with strains of Malaysian... East Indian, white, maybe black. We're not too sure about that. Just a whole mixture. I'm 10 years old. I'm in the basement of our house in Scarborough. And uh, there's a closet that we don't really use. It's the closet in the far reaches of the house no one really goes there and uh, I'm a curious 10 year old with nothing much to do that day and I start checking out that closet and uh, and I grabbed this one box down and I dump out the contents and there are two green pieces of paper and I scan down this document it was written in Afrikaans and in English. It's got my name. Hand, it's all handwritten. 
my date of birth, where I was born, and then race. It said race, cape colored. And I, I'm just staring at this thing that says race, cape colored. I couldn't rip my eyes away from it. And I'm thinking, that's my birth certificate. And I never, I, I don't tell anybody about this. I just keep that birth certificate a secret. It's on. Mom, I think you need to come a little closer. Like Maybe if you could sit here. Okay. Well, I guess I never really asked you why why you told us so little about South Africa and about our colored identity when we were kids. Why you didn't tell us about it. We, we wanted you to, to, to know that you're colored, but we didn't want you to, to feel colored in the way that we have felt colored. I mean, we were discriminated against every day. You caught a train, it was segregated. Where you lived was affected by your race. Where you went to school was. What job you even took was, because there was job reservation. So, you know, bearing all that in mind, this is what we carried with us, and this is what we certainly didn't want you to get any sense of for yourselves. Anything else? Not How do you, do you feel we should have told you more earlier? I think a lot of my confusion is just not really having understood what it really was, what colored See, was. Both mum and I, we were not in any way ashamed of being colored. What we didn't like was the way you know what colored was kind of associated with. Mum? Mm-hmm. When it came to talking about anything personal, it was too difficult. I didn't like to be reminded of how it made me feel. And I was almost afraid that that feeling that I had would be transmitted to you children. I have an experience that has never left me with my mother. And she had taken us to the beach, to Cork Bay. And when we left, we had to run for the train. And the train was segregated. And so we jumped into the white coach. And my mother said, oh, come on, come on, just get in here. So we jumped into the white coach. And the conductor came along to collect the tickets. And he said, what are you doing here? You know you're not allowed to be in here. Get out. And we couldn't argue, and my mother didn't argue. My mother was a very feisty woman. And she just meekly got up and said, yes, sir, we'll, at the next station, we'll do that. And she got out of the train and she said, come along, children. And we, she ran down the platform in order to get to the colored coaches and we ran and I can still see her running 
in front of me you know and she and she was plumpish and I can still see her and You know, to see your own mother humiliated like that, I had always, um, you know, I had the greatest admiration for my mother and her guts and her courage, and to see her brought down like that was, as you can see, it still bothers me. When when I hear my mom tell that story. I'm I I didn't know about that. I didn't know anything about that. And I I never really thought about what she went through. And then when I hear her cry, you know, that happened over 50 years ago and I just I didn't know she carried it with her so fresh still. It's a pity that we haven't come far enough that we that we haven't discarded categorizing people. I still don't think I fit into any of the categories. I don't like having to classify myself by race. That's one of the reasons that they left, so we wouldn't have to think about this anymore. I, I think that you should feel free to put whatever you want to, because you went. You weren't raised in that climate. So I, I still don't know what to do with the form. I know that being colored for me is not the same as it was for my parents. And I know that in Canada it really doesn't mean anything. I don't think I can really answer the question on the form. I think maybe I think the best thing for me to do is skip the question. With my birth certificate, I had no choice. But with this piece of paper, I do. According to Form was produced by Neil Sandel for Outfront on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, a series that asks everyday Canadians to tell their story on the radio. Christian, who does not give his last name, lives between two countries, and the consequences for this in-betweenness could be serious. There's the country he was born in, Mexico, and the one he lives in without legal documents, the United States. His siblings don't share his problem as they were born here and have natural citizenship. Christian is between generations, countries, and governmental policies. That's a lot for a 16-year-old. Alright, this is my neighborhood, Port Richmond, in Staten Island, New York. Every morning when I take the bus to school, I see men lining up on Port Richmond Avenue. They're waiting for jobs in construction, roofing, or whatever is available. Right now there are about 20 guys out here. They don't look so happy, and their clothes doesn't look so clean at all. Sometimes my stepdad's one of them. I work with my stepdad on a few jobs, and I know I don't want to spend my whole life breaking concrete for $100 a day. But when I look at the men on Port Richmond Avenue, 
I see myself in the future, standing there, waiting, and it makes me feel depressed. I started high school this year, and someday I want to become an engineer, or maybe an archaeologist. I want to learn about my ancestors, the Aztec people, and find some ruins that no one has ever found. There's a Mexican runaway from the border. <laughs> I heard two illegal Mexicans got married at the top of the fence. <laughs> my friends are all from different backgrounds, and we make jokes about each other every day. Christian is a true Mexican. Why, you might ask? Because his pants are full of paint, which is what Mexicans always come to work in. Sometimes they even make fake green cards out of construction paper and draw my picture on them. And yeah, that's funny, but I wish they were real. I don't have legal papers. When I was four, my mom carried me across the border. All I remember is helicopters, dogs barking, and I felt like I couldn't breathe because I had dirt in my nose. When we got to Staten Island, I learned how to read and write in English and forgot a lot of my Spanish. I play with my Hot Wheels in the driveway and watch Pokemon TV. But the difference between me and most of my friends is four years from now, they'll be getting ready to go to college. They could become firemen, astronauts, mechanics, anything they want. But when I turn 18, I will either have to go back to Mexico and start all over or hide for the rest of my life. Living debajo de la raya, under the line, underground. Yo, you lucky just made that go because I didn't have any. My cousin Mikey is four years older than me, but we play video games and hang out a lot, like if we were brothers. When we were little, Mikey really wanted to become a U.S. Marine. He thought it would make my aunt proud of him and help him pay for college. Even if, you know, it looks scary and everything, it looks really dangerous, I want to go, you know? Definitely, I want to go to get uh, go to college, and uh, maybe I can be someone in this country. <laughs> I don't know. When he was in 10th grade, Mikey talked to military recruiters in his high school, but they told him he couldn't join because he was undocumented. When they say no, I'm like, then, you know, I just walk away and just like, I don't know what to do, and uh, it's not like I have two choices. Soon after that, Mikey tried to get a job as a plumber, but he couldn't because he didn't have legal papers. Then he just decided to drop out of high school. It's not just Mikey. I know a lot of kids who drop out. Some of them are already working as day laborers. Some of them join gangs. Most of the people at my church come from Mexico. And our priest, Father Michael, says he sees this all the time. I see in this neighborhood people who in sophomore or junior year of high school because they do not have citizenship or papers think well there's no sense studying or working or doing anything it gives a person a feeling of what's the use that's a very sad thing to do to youth to frustrate all that energy and talent there's no way right now for me to get my legal papers. Even though I was only four years old, the fact that I crossed the border illegally means I can't ever marry someone for my papers. I can't get sponsored by my family. I'm not eligible for a special work visa. I'm completely locked out. 
unless Congress makes a change to immigration laws. There's a law they've been debating for a long time. It will make it possible for kids in my situation to become citizens if they finish two years of college or military service. It's called the DREAM Act. Si, si algún día, eh... My mom says, if we don't fix our papers, all I'm going to have is dreams. My little brother, Dominic, was born here. Yeah. So, how does it feel to be an American citizen? Okay. How does it feel to know... That you're gonna have a better future than I am. <coughs> How does it feel to be a furry monkey? <coughs> in a cabinet in my mom's room, she keeps things from when Dominic and I were little. There's baby clothes and the blanket that I wore on my shoulders when I was crossing the border. I pull out some pictures from when my little brother was born. He's so funny. In every picture, he's laughing. In one picture, me, my cousin Mikey, and my little brother are all together. Me and Mikey were born in Mexico, and Adami was born here with the rest of my little cousins. And that's it. They're going to have a better life than me and Mikey's going to have. Happy for them, I guess. Yeah. I don't know. Dreams Deferred was produced by Christian with Sanda Tite, Melissa Robbins, and Kari Pitkin for Radio Rookies at WNYC in New York. Last but not least, before we go, one more short documentary for you. It's part of the Third Coast Festival Public Audio Challenge Radio Ephemera. This year, veteran and rookie producers alike were invited to make three-minute radio stories inspired by two of the following bits of printed ephemera culled from the amazing Prelinger Library in San Francisco. Trees as Good Citizens, Control of Body and Mind, The Big Strike, Trailer Ahoy, and The Facts of Life for Teenagers. Each radio ephemera submission also had to include the voice of a stranger. The one you are about to hear is called A Transgender Childhood by Tina Antolini. On my street, there were two groups of people. There were the little boys and the little girls. And I was supposed to be with the little girls, but my body was supposed to be with the little boys. You know, you hear it's a cliche. I just knew I wasn't in the right body. And I kept waiting, thinking that, you know, someday I would grow the appropriate appendage. It just hadn't happened yet. And, you know, and it didn't happen, and it didn't happen, and it didn't happen. I wasn't quite sure what to call it, you know. It's because I was just way too young, and I had this body that said one thing, and this brain that said another, and this whole internal being that said another. I felt absolutely just horrified when I got my period. Growing up is fun, but some of the things Molly used to do seem a little silly now. Sometimes she gets all mixed up just thinking about it. 
She's changing from a child into an adult. And it's a little confusing at times. I felt like my life was just stripped, you know, like, and I just felt absolutely betrayed. Like, uh-oh, here I am, you know, here it's all happening. Well, each of us is different from the day we're born. No two people are exactly alike. Then at puberty, certain glands begin to work, and our bodies begin to change. But where are these glands? Yeah, and what's puberty? Puberty was a mess. Um, when I hit puberty, it was quite traumatic for me, even though I knew everybody gets body hair. In sixth and seventh grade, I was shaving off the body hair. <laughs> it was like, it was crazy. Um, it was a turning point in how I had to act, I guess, would be a way to put it. Because I thought somehow, at some point, my body would magically be the right one. Almost instantly, I stopped playing with the boys, which I always played with the boys growing up. There were a lot more boys in the neighborhood than girls. And I, it just, everything just changed. You know, everything just seemed like it went downhill from there. So yeah, adolescence sucked. Soon, Molly will be a young woman, having dates, going to dances in lovely romantic dresses, and making new and important friends. There are so many wonderful things to look forward to. Growing up, it's an exciting time. A Transgender Childhood was produced by Tina Antolini for the 2008 Third Coast Festival Public Audio Challenge Radio Ephemera. Come to the hideout and hear some of the highlights of Radio Ephemera. Meet some of the ephemeral producers, hear some ephemeral comedy, gaze at some beautiful ephemeral photographs, and be among the first to hear the newly chosen 2008 Third Coast Festival Short Docs. Wednesday, September 10th, hosted by Third Coast Festival Managing Director Julie Shapiro and myself. Tickets are available at the door, but we strongly recommend you make a reservation. To find out how, go to thirdcoastfestival.org. ReSound is a production of Chicago Public Radio and the Third Coast International Audio Festival. I'm Gwen Maxi. The program is produced by Delaney Hall and curated by Johanna Zorn and Julie Shapiro of the Third Coast Festival. Our production intern is Katie Mingle, and our festival intern is Ben Winter. You can hear today's program at thirdcoastfestival.org, where you can also hear dozens of outstanding documentaries from all around the world and subscribe to our podcast. Lead support for the Third Coast Festival is provided by the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, with additional funding from the National Endowment for the Arts, American Airlines, and Chicago's Navy Pier. Music for ReSound is provided by Reckless Records in Chicago. If you want to contact us, we would love to hear from you. Email us at resound at thirdcoastfestival.org. Resound returns next week with more radio that you can't hear anywhere else unless you live everywhere else.